0: So just, yeah, I've done my prostration. So if you want to do yours, you're very welcome. Okay, so we'll all do our jobs, all prostrating to the Buddha, to listen to Buddha's teachings. How amazing. Okay, I've got to find some text. While you're doing that, I'll look for the text. Okay. Oh, dear, where is it? Books. Okay. All right. Happy to see you all. Imagine you all there if I can't see you. Here I am in Santa Fe on a four o'clock on a nice, shiny, sunny Saturday afternoon. I gave up coffee about five, more than five years ago, and I never think about it, but suddenly I'm obsessed with coffee again. So I had two espressos this morning, and I feel like I've taken a drug. So if I keel over, you'll know what's happened. I can't believe the effect of it. I just can't believe it, I'm so shocked. So now I'm obsessed with coffee again and I have one every three days. I couldn't cope with every day. So it's just ridiculous, isn't it? A silly old espresso. Okay, so here I am, drunk from coffee. Can you all hear me? Did you hear that silly story? Okay, so I'm, I'm ready with our text. And we're sitting here together from wherever we are, in Melbourne, in wherever we are, and we're thinking we're going to listen to Lama Yeshi's teachings through my mouth. I'm his daughter, so I hope I'm interpreting Lama properly. That's really important. So that we can think about how to develop our true nature using this marvelous, seemingly simple technique. It is technically simple using the two modes of meditation, but a really specific approach to realizing the emptiness, the ultimate reality of our mind, which is its emptiness first based upon understanding its conventional nature, which is its clarity. You know, this marvelous mirror, this mirror-like mind of ours, in order to clean it completely so that we can cognize exactly what exists without mistake, which is the potential of every single mind, which is a pretty radical idea, I tell you, but this is Buddha's view. Okay. So you know,
1: could we please offer mandala?
0: Go on then. Let's do it with enthusiasm. Yes. Vigor and enthusiasm. So <laughs> Jason is going to superimpose that. We imagine we're offering all the marvelous things of the universe. Pile them all up. Use your creative imagination. Pile them all up and make an offering to the Buddha as a request for the teachings.
1: Okay, go. <laughs> pram ri jin ling zin yi de gyen pa Sangye-zing-dua-mik-te-u-wa ku che pa shog jet sun la ma dam pak ye hen he hitcher kala hence, it's in trade. pedu hamper, do jetzi in my lahaza, get you, keep your
0: Imagine Buddha happily receiving our marvelous offering.
1: That
0: was definitely vigorous. Well <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. So now we do this other little prayer, which is the two first two lines reiterating our reliance on the Buddha, for those of us who are committed to being Buddhists, who have decided that. And the second two lines making this amazing, altruistic, vast, uh motivation or reason or purpose for our being together for this remaining few hours today to think about all these things so that we can take all this information as tools so we can develop our amazing potential so we can be a Buddha to benefit sentient beings that's our long-term goal and as his holiness says always aspire to do what is most beneficial and long-term better than short-term So best so we then just think this as I sing the Tibetan Sange charang soke chognam la jangcho badu dagni kiabsuchi dagi chernian kippers onam ki, ki draw penche sange dropa Shok. Sange May I take refuge until I'm enlightened in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Supreme Assembly. By my merits from listening to the Dharma, may I become a Buddha to benefit transmigratory beings. Okay, thank you so much. All right. So, why don't we start with that little meditation that we did yesterday, the first one, which is the nine round breathing. So get your body comfy, just look, check the the eight or so points. If you're in full lotus, great. If in half lotus, great. Ordinary cross-legged, great, that's fine. That's the first one. Second is your hands in your lap, like this if you want. Thumbs thumbs touching, left underneath and the mudra of meditation. Third is, you know, however you're sitting, whether it's in a chair or whatever, have yourself upright. Don't slump into the chair. Your body upright, but just muscles relaxed. Flop the muscles, keep the bones upright. Then your head slightly tilted forward, chin tucked in, jaw relaxed, lips apart slightly, the tip of the tongue behind the top teeth, just near the palate. All the yogis over the centuries have found when you're meditating for many hours, but you don't dribble, it's just so practical. And finally, your eyes looking down beneath your eyelids as if you're looking along your nose towards the ground. So settle into this position and then forget about it because your body doesn't meditate. This is just the position that has been found to be most conducive for the mind to do its job properly. Settling to this position. So now we're going to use our breath. And this is not a concentration meditation. Specifically, you're using your concentration, obviously, but it's not specifically a concentration technique. Because in a concentration technique, you're consciously not using discursive thought. But here, we're going to focus, but we're going to use thinking. And we're going to steady our mind by imagining the air, the first three breaths, all going out. Through the right nostril. And it's all, it's like yucky smoke. It is all our attachment and neediness, expectation, bottomless pit of dissatisfaction, possessive energy, attachment, totally disappearing like yucky smoke into space. The next three, you visualize all your aversion, all the way from the most volatile anger, irritation, annoyance, frustration, upset, anxiety, worry, depression, despair. There's this spectrum of responses of aversion. You all have one of those. Totally leaving through your left nostril, wanting it so delightedly to disappear into smoke because the reality is it has no inherent nature. These good and bad are real conventionally, but ultimately, like everything, they have no intrinsic nature, whereas we grasp at them as absolute and as real, like Lama told us yesterday. So even thinking these negative and positive are functioning as negative and positive, but they have no intrinsic nature. This is very encouraging the third three breath through both, out, yucky smoke, all the ignorance, indifference, uncaring, fundamentalism, narrow mindedness, function of ignorance energy, disappearing like yucky smoke into space. Then adding to that, this when you breathe in when you're breathing out through the right, you then breathe in through the left, all the blissful non-attachment energy of the universe, coming in like blissful white light, filling you completely, and then driving out all the yucky attachment through the right three times. And then when you breathe out through the right, the left, all the anger, you breathe in through the right, all the blissful non-aversion energy of the universe, all the holy beings, our own potential, through the right nostril, filling us completely and driving out through the left all the rubbish aversion disappearing into space and then breathing in blissful radiant light of wisdom that drives out all the yucky ignorance energy through both nostrils so do it at your own pace and it's your breath it's your breathing which is physical you your st- because your mind is inextricably linked to the breathing this is the, the tantric model of the universe the mind the body but also it's your mind wanting this imagining this aspiring to do this which is exactly what makes it happen okay? At your own pace. Three breaths through out to the right attachment. Three breaths out through the left, anger. Three breaths out through both, ignorance. At your own pace. And if you get lost, just start again, don't worry. Relax now. That's about seven minutes. Seven minutes, good quality. Seven minutes, maybe even more. Maybe eight. To steady the body and to steady the mind. You see that this is the, Just to explain briefly, this is but this is you know the Vajrayana model, the Vajrayana explanation of the body and the mind, is. Um, it's very specific, and this is what's related to the. When we go through the death process, we learn to understand this. You know, you and a, the Tibetan medical system is also based on this model, and it's very interesting. You know, because we've got gross level, we've got this, as we discussed briefly yesterday, gross level of consciousness, which is what we posit in the West, is the gross of our sensory, and then the grosser level of our conceptuality, all the thoughts and chatting away. You know, which is where the brain is involved, indeed. So when you st- in the death process, when you go through the first four stages, by the time you stop breathing, you're dead. That's what the world thinks. There's nothing, it looks like there's no indication of life because our assumption of life is indicated by the presence of the brain and the heart and the, the blah, blah, blah. You know, that's not the Buddha's view of, that's the gross mind. But now subtle mind has kicked in. So subtle mind, and the only time we ever access that is when we dream. That's our subtle mind. And that's when body, people have out-of-body experiences, people see in the future and the past because the subtle mind can do that. And of course, when you're a great yogi, you can use this completely, like Mama Yeshi's talking about when we've achieved Mahamudra. So achieve single point of concentration. Sorry. So the, the relationship is this: it's got what, these seventy two thousand subtle channels, like a subtle nervous system, and coursing through all those channels are these different wind energies, prana. Now this is how we used to talk a thousand years ago. I'm sure eight hundred years ago, in our model, in our model of medicine in the world, you know, the elements and the and the and the and the and the, and the, and the four the four elements. That's still the model that's used here. There's detailed descriptions of these four elements and their intimate relationship. Lama I mean, Yeshi mentioned it yesterday in the, uh, in the in the in the emptiness chapter. So the, all these sub- these different wind energies coursing through the different seventy two thousand subtle channels. Now this is the point: inextricably linked to those winds are our mental states, all our states of mind. I mean, it's clearly a very different model, you know, from how we talk in the modern world, the materialist philosophical view. So this is what's interesting when we talk about, as Lama Zopa said, in the color chakra tantra the word sutra and the word tantra refer either to a type of teaching or to a text so in the kalachakra tantric text whether he said there are these detailed descriptions of the intimate relationship between internal and external energy internal means mind cognition thoughts feelings emotions External means the physical elements, including the body. That's external, as well as the external out there. Because the body is of the same character as the four elements outside there, isn't it? I mean, this body is exactly the same character as a flower, a table, a rock. It's the four elements. But it happens to be this particular set of the four elements is imbued with a consciousness so this consciousness, this mind of ours coursing through these 72 subtle channels, inextricably linked to all those wind energies. So there's this tr- intimate, inextricable relationship. So as Ramajay says, and this is explaining karma to us, whenever you even just your mind, let's say your mind is loving, your mind is actually thinking loving thoughts. This naturally impacts upon the wind energies related to your love because they all got these different states that might have their own wind energies. Your Tibetan doctor, when she feels your pulses, she can feel exactly which wind energies are balanced and imbalanced, like your acupuncturist does. But even more precisely, in this model, they know which part of your mind is linked to that. So if you've got lots of anxiety, which is your mind, you can feel the winds completely berserk. you know. So if, you, if your mind is peaceful and loving, those winds will be peaceful. So when the mind is loving, that literally purifies your winds which in turn create the cause to have a healthy body because the winds the status of your winds is what health is and then eventually in turn karmically that impacts upon even the external elements so you wake up one life with all the elements beautifully organized which is good environmental karma so sickness for example sickness when we get say people with COVID-19 right now any sickness there's two results of, of, of negativity in the past in terms of killing. One is the experience similar to the cause, which is where you get harmed or you get sick. You know, but the, you get harmed or you die or people kill you. But the environmental result is that the physical world is yucky and impacts upon you. Well, that is the result of your past anger, past killing many, many, many lifetimes ago. So whatever you think now impacts upon your winds, which in turn creates the cause for you to have a health or ill health, which in turn creates the cause for the external elements to be harmonious or not. So we are literally the creators of our universe. We are literally the creators of the universe over a long, long, long time. So this COVID-19, as far as the environment is concerned, is the result probably of a thousand, ten thousand lifetimes ago, collective karma of collective killing, such that this physical world, which which includes other human beings will actually harm us if we touch them it's so like you've got you know you might have an allergy to peanuts the air might be polluted the water polluted the food bad condition that's the direct result of your killing in the past from a countless lifetimes ago we are the creators we don't need a creator we don't need another boss we don't need anybody pulling the strings we don't need punishers and rewarders we are the boss which is a pretty incredible view this is the karmic view you know the buddha's view of the universe so even just doing that meditation steadies your wind energy, steadies the anger, therefore, steadies the attachment, therefore, steadies the ignorance, therefore, when you can steady the winds, you yeah. know, the body and mind are interdependent. Okay. So I think, were there many questions left over from yesterday, Amy, or are there new questions this morning or what? Uh,
1: I think we asked all the questions yesterday and there's no new new questions yet. Okay,
0: fantastic. All right, very good. Okay, so, hang on. My stand has gone off. All right, so now then... So what we talked about yesterday, we're using Lamy book, Mahamudra, How to Discover Our True Nature. We tried to describe a little bit what Mahamudra is. So Mahamudra is Sanskrit, great seal. So it's this kind of a a colloquial term that they've created referring, it's a word that is basically synonymous with emptiness. So it has this nice taste because everything that exists ultimately is, is actually sealed, is, is actually defined by its emptiness. Of course, it's abstract to us, this idea. It's the ultimate nature of everything that exists. There's nothing that exists that isn't empty of intrinsic character. There's nothing that exists that isn't interdependent, as Lama tells us. So I think it's very helpful. Lama, We we read Lama's chapter, very marvelous, and that's expressing the the final view of emptiness, the final view, the the view expressed, as Lama says, by Nagarjuna and the great yogis, Nagarjuna and Tsongkhapa. So it's, it's, it's specifically the, the presentation of the Buddhist school of thought. In the, There are many over the centuries that, that you learned about when you study Buddhist tenets, you know, and they do this in the monastic universities. Over the centuries, there are many views that have come from people interpreting Buddhist teachings, each for a different type of mind. So this is called Buddhist tenets. And the one that Lama was describing yesterday is the view of what's called the consequentialist middle way view, the madhyam, Madhyamaka, and there's different schools of thought there and the one we're discussing is the one that's called the consequentialist but the buddha taught various views different views each of which is where he diverged from the hindu expression the hindu explanations of the nature of self that's why buddha diverged and there are various views various interpretations of this selflessness so one Okay, so one way of presenting all of that, and Lama taught it, said it, implied it in his chapter, is is called The Two Truths. So let's look a little bit at this. The Two Truths, conventional, the way things exist conventionally, and the way things exist ultimately. So right now, Buddha says, we have in our mind naturally as a result of this root delusion called ignorance in Tibetan, ma-ripa, unawareness. And this ignorance is a very specific ignorance. Because of this specific ignorance, and I'll describe. We, have, we now live in the, in the two extreme views. We're way off the, plo- off the plot. We're not anywhere near the actual reality. We've got a two extreme views. We have to try and fix these two views to get to be on track with the two correct views, according to Buddha, of how things exist. And then, when we've got these two together, we can see how they're integrated. And this is when we're really on the right track. Right now, when we hear them, we hear them not only correctly, but we hear them even as opposite, we hear them as contradictory. So, this ignorance, what is this? So, like I was saying yesterday, in the Buddhist model of the mind, Buddha teaches there are, and when we look at the mental consciousness, forget about the sensory, we've got three categories of states of mind, there's no fourth. The first lot are the negative, neurotic, deluded, fear-based, eye based all those rooted in this this ignorance, known colloquially as ego grasping, or as Lama called it, ego mind. It's his own term for it. It is primordially deep, the deepest or the root misconception, the root lie, the root delusion, the root affliction. Lama in Mahamudra has got 21 different synonyms, most of which he made up in his wish to help communicate with us the way our crazy mind works, you know. And this is unique to the Buddha's take on things. I've been unmuted.
1: Just, yeah, just How unmuted long have you been hearing me? For about 10 seconds.
0: Oh, good, okay. Because so I just thought it and it unmuted. I don't think I even... T-
1: It's happened again, Venerable Rabina? Oh no, she's muted deliberately.
0: Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to hear the sound of my nose blowing. Okay. Okay. So what is this? So these so these delu- these are these delusions. This is you know the, the neurotic, deluded, afflicted, disturbing, ridiculous, off-the-wall misconceptions these are the source of our suffering the source of all sentient beings suffering the source of why we harm others and the source of therefore life after life and laughter of misery so we've got to. In, in in so this is where the lam rim fits beautifully in junior school we begin to subdue the, the servants of those minds we control our body and we control our speech it's very logical you know lama doesn't talk about this at all in in this book because it's not relevant to mahamudra but i'm talking about it here because it's helpful for us to get the bigger picture you know so, so he, Buddha doesn't give us a look at the mind yet. It's too advanced. He says, just control the servants of your mind, baby. Don't kill. Don't lie. Don't jump on the wrong partners. Just control yourself. Be, be, behave nicely. It seems almost so cute. It's like a joke. You know? Your mother would say, behave nicely. We think, who cares about behavior? Well, it's really the point. I always remember, you know, because I mean, I've always been naughty all my life, bad behavior, always getting into trouble in the family, at school, everywhere I go, even in the Buddhist centers. I'm always a troublemaker, supposedly, whatever. And I know one time I had all full of all this self-pity. I was Lama she's for like a week in London. And it was like being in a washing machine. It was so intense. I can't even describe to you. I didn't know whether I was Arthur or Martha. So if you Americans, that's a very funny saying, but we say that in Australia and England. You don't know whether you're Arthur or Martha. And these days, we don't know whether Arthur or Martha. We've got four other variations now, haven't we, in these days? Never mind that. Anyway, it was, it was an incredible experience. So at some point I was feeling all this self-pity about my neurotic behavior, right? Because I'm always fighting with people or whatever. And I was all self-piteous and said to Lum And he just, I'll never forget, lama yes, would just out of the blue, you know, like a flash of lightning, he'd just say about three words and it would blow my mind. So this time he said, just sort of like in passing, and it blew it blew my mind. I can't tell. He said, There's nothing wrong with your heart, dear. It's just your behavior. And it was a revelation for me. Because, you know, when you are full of self-pity, you think, I am bad, you know, I, concrete I. And he said, nothing wrong with your heart, dear. It's just your behaviour. It was a revelation. Suddenly I realised, oh, I'm okay. Just the way I behave, I better start controlling myself. Well, here I am still, 45 years later, trying to control my body and my speech, which is junior school entry-level Buddhism. Control your body and speech. I mean, if we could do that in our life, in our relationships, at work, at home, we would not have problems. It is such a profound piece of vice. We don't even think about it, you know. Because we think I'm allowed to say what I want. I'm allowed to do what I want. We're so naive, we're so nihilistic, you know. But if we understood this instruction, it is profound practice. So then, guess what? You know, one of the consequences of that is you begin to harness your crazy behavior energy. So then you have suddenly have space to go to high school and start to see your mind, to get to the root of the problem, to become your own therapist, you know. So, the delusions, when we start to look at these in high school, we start to see we've got at least three categories of states of mind. We have the neurotic, ridiculous, disturbing, unhappy, afflicted ones, the crazy ones. So we're never going to start to unpack and unravel them because they are the source of the problem. So now, as I've said, in you know, Buddha talks about 84,000, like this map of the mind, you know, 84,000 distinct neurotic states of mind. But luckily, thank you for him. Thank you for us. He narrows them all down. They all subsume to three. And if we can understand these three, as simplistic as they sound to us, we really have a deep understanding of what Buddha is talking about and we deeply can begin to understand ourselves and others. So they've got a hierarchical relationship, these three. The root one is simply called ignorance, maripa unawareness. So colloquially, we call it ego grasping when it relates to the misconception of the self. In general, we have a misconception, Buddha says, about everything. We have a misconception. This is the deepest delusion, has this deepest primordial misconception about the very ontological status itself of everything as they exist. It's the most primordial. And it's because it's so primordial, we don't even recognize it. That's why we've got to get calm abiding. As Lama Yeti says, there's no way in the universe you can recognize that neurotic sense of self and then eradicate it. Not possible without calm abiding. So that root delusion, ego grasping, on the basis of the root delusion, which is this neurotic fear-based, fear-based, wrong sense of a concrete, solid, neurotic, self-pity, ridiculous me, On the basis of that assumption, we then have this enormous emotional hunger to because that me feels miserable. Because of a grasping of that me, we feel miserable. So when this is a this is attachment energy, the main voice of ego grasping. So that is effectively the main cause of our suffering in daily life, attachment, which sounds hilarious if we think of you know modern psychology. It's this bottomless pit of dissatisfaction which then gives rise to constant craving for something we think is missing, which then causes us to manipulate to get it, which causes us to then believe that Fred or whatever the object is, is utterly divine. As Lama, yes, he says, you know, the mirror's dirty with this dust of attachment that makes the object look delicious. And then we believe that when I get that, I'll get happy. This is what drives us in our daily life, every millisecond. And then when it doesn't get what it wants, when that attachment is thwarted and that's a thousand times a day, that's a third one, that's aversion. So like I said, attachment is multifaceted or so is aversion. Attachment is emotional dissatisfaction, emotional hunger, manipulation, expectations, neediness, manipulating, expecting, possessing, and then believing that it's the cause of my happiness so you've got to get it. Then when it doesn't get what it wants, that's aversion and aversion can be the most volatile anger through the spectrum of annoyed, irritated, frustrated, despair and depression. We all recognize all of these. So these three words are simple, but the, the implication is profound. So in high school, we're unpacking and unravelling these ones. We're not touching the ignorance so much yet. We're just looking at the main ones, attachment and aversion, and becoming becoming more stable. We first control our body and speech. Already we get more stable. Then we start to unpack and unravel and start to stabilise the attachment and aversion and get even more stable, more in charge of our lives, catching the wheels when they're wobbling, not waiting for them to fall off because we're being our own therapist. Already amazing. Now we go onto the the Bodhisattva path and we get teacher, which we've skipped over here because that's not a part of Mahamudras. It's one of the preliminaries. And then we get to the, the two, the last of the six perfections, which is concentration, karma, biting and special insight. So now special insight is the sixth one of the perfections of the Buddha. And that's insight into not impermanence, not this, not that, not karma, but insight into the ultimate way that things exist, which is known as emptiness that's the topic in mahamudra so I'm describing the kind of this traditional approach to it not the Mahamudra approach because and that's so because it's helpful to understand intellectually what emptiness means you know and of course it's hard for us we might have heard it for 40 years we still can't get it because it's too it's too primordial and as long as you said as I read it yesterday this this reality, that everything, the the reality that everything has no intrinsic nature, this reality of everything that exists, the reality of everything that exists is it has no intrinsic nature. Of course, that sounds so abstract to us. Another term for that is non-duality. So Islam says, you know, non-duality is not hiding from us. It's the nature of whatever exists, this computer, you know, my voice, the statue behind me, the flower, the lamp shining on my face. You know, each one of us, everything in front of us, the clock, the couch, everything is in its nature is empty of intrinsic existence. But because we've got a mirror full of dirty, a dirty mirror full of the dust of believing, it's not like that. We see our own projection, not the reality. So in fact, it's like you're colorblind, you know? It's a good example. If you're colorblind, I mean, I don't know how colorblindness works, but if something is, is, something is pink, but you see it as blue, Because your eyes not working, someone can tell you a thousand times a day that it's not blue, but you see it as blue and you believe it's blue and it appears as blue. You might know intellectually, oh, yes, maybe pink, but you believe in blue because it's staring in your face that it's blue. Now, the reality is pink is right there in front of you because your mind being polluted, your mind, your, your mirror of, in this case, your eyes, but, you know, the mirror of your mind is dusty that causes it to appear to you as blue when in reality it's actually pink. So pink isn't hiding from you, pink is staring you in the face because your eyes are mistaken and you believe what you see. That's the analogy of the mind right now. The mirror um, mirror of our mind, polluted, disturbed by, you know, the, the different delusions. So when attachment is in my mind, the cake looks delicious. It looks delicious. We don't think, oh, I'm making the cake look delicious. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder, as our mother's told us. This is a profound statement. We we don't believe that for one second. When I look at that cake or I look at Fred, I don't think it's in my mind. I don't think beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I think beauty is in Fred's veins, as if be- no, in Fred himself out there, shining beauty back at me, causing me to beg him. sort you know, of, It's kind of he's begging me to love him. He's begging me to have him like as if beauty is coursing through his veins along with his blood. That's how things appear to us. If I'm angry with Fred, I don't think my mind is making up angry Fred, I think he is angry in his bones. The cake looks delicious in itself. This is exactly how all the delusions function, but specifically the ego grasping, the root one, the ignorance, the maripa. So even intellectually we can begin to know, understand this and this is a good start but the mistake, you've been seeing things as pink for so long. You 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 know you believe. You've been seeing things as blue for so long. I forget which one I said now. It's, like it's really pink, but you think it's blue, okay? But you've been seeing it as blue for so long, and you've believed it's blue for so long. So it appears to you as blue, and you believe it's blue. Now, this is what Lama Zopa says, and this is what Buddha is saying. It's bad enough that things appear to us to have an intrinsic nature as this or that. It's bad enough that they appear to us to they appear to us like that. That's bad enough. But the killer, the, the thing that keeps us rooted in samsara is that we believe it. That's the killer. So, as Lama Zoba says, even though we don't even, even though, even though we it still appears to us as blue, you you don't believe it's blue. You start chipping away at the belief. So, even though you, it still appears to you as self-existent, as existing out there from its own side, having zero to deal with, to do with me. That's how the world appears to us, and that's the major, the root, the fundamental mistake. And it's a primordial mistake. And we've been making this mistake for eons, Buddha says. That's even what's creating us to even be reborn. So the general function of all the neuroses is they are liars. Attachment exaggerates the deliciousness of something aversion exaggerates the ugliness of something they're both underpinned by the root delusion that causes the cake to be from its own side delicious it causes the ugly fred once he's given me up for a younger version to appear ugly from his own side that's that's the function of the ego grasping that informs the attachment informs the anger it's the most subtle mistake So what's the different, the different, this, we're talking now the opposite method that Mahamudra is. Mahamudra is you go straight to the piano and intuit Bach. So now we're doing the first one, which is the theory first and then the experience. And that's okay, we can go back and forth, you know. So what are these two truths then? It's one way of presenting the entire universe for the Buddha. So everything that, that does exist, the Buddha says, exists first has, they have, each has a conventional character which is very specific to each phenomenon. And then everything that exists has a, an ultimate character. So, emptiness is the shorthand for how everything exists ultimately. So, we've got to unpack that word, see how we use it, see what Buddha means by it, the use of it. You know, it sounds so weird to us. And then the, 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 the shorthand for the conventional existence is dependent arising, interdependence, as Lama calls it dependent arising that everything that does exist exists in dependence upon various factors that's its conventional character now buddha teaches in general three kind of ways in which things exist but there are many variations of these and these are the he's he's arguing with his different views that existed beforehand in the Hindu views. is arguing with these different views and, he, and many of these are different than their presentations of different views in Buddhist tenets about how things do exist and don't exist. So generally you can say there are three levels of dependent arising broadly speaking. The very first level of dependent arising is that all phenomena, all impermanent phenomena including a self a lamp, all the objects of our ordinary world—they all exist in dependence upon causes. You won't find anything among those causes that is that thing, and you ca- and you won't find it among the, those the, among the causes. and You won't find it separately from the causes or among the causes, because. A thing like a self or a lamp is the is the result of those causes, is the culmination of those causes. Simple way of saying it. So, so there's many phenomena in the universe. And so first of all, to even discuss emptiness, we've got to first establish things as conventionally existent. This is very rigorous kind of logic. You can say, oh, that's an uha," ha and you can start believing in an uha. ha That's not enough. You can't do that. It's too wiki. It's too lazy. You've got to say what something is. You give it a name. You define it. You actually then come into an agreement in your conventional world about what it is, how it functions. You sign off on it. You all shake hands, and we all agree that is a lamp. That is a cup. That is a person. So what's a cup? You know, what's a cup, mum? What's that shape? What's that thing over there, mummy? Oh, that's called a cup, darling. What's a cup? Well, a definition way we can say it here, it's got two, two parts. The first part tells you it's conventional character. Oh, sweetheart, it's flat-bottomed container. And you hear, you see it, you, you understand those words, you learn and you get it, you see it, but you're not happy yet. Or flat bottom something, a pot, a flat bottom something, but you're not happy yet, because you don't, and this is a real point now, this is a huge one when it comes to understanding emptiness, come understanding reality. But what does it do, mummy? What is it? What's its job? What's its function? What, what does it mean? Yeah, it's flat bottom something or other made of clay. But what is it? And this is the second part of the definition. And that tells you what its job is, what its function is. And this is a huge thing. Well, sweetheart, it holds my tea. Now you understand what it is. Now, but you don't believe your mother. You have to prove that she's right. Don't just believe it. She can make it up. She's got to prove it. So she gets her tea and she pours and you will see and she will see that, in fact, it fulfills that function. It holds her tea. Well, so far, so good, but still not enough. We've now got to check that among our conventional world, there's no other valid cognition of that phenomenon that fundamentally contradicts that. So once you've established that, you sign the box, you tick off, and now you all shake hands and you agree that is a cup. Well, every phenomenon in the universe has to be like this. Now, this is getting things conventionally correct. Now, Buddha saying this. Most of the time, we're not even getting things conventionally existing. We're not even getting things accurate conventionally. We make up garbage. We make up conspiracy theories every minute. We believe in absolute nonsense. So a very good step is to start at least getting things conventionally correct. At least calm your mind down and start recognizing at least conventionally, that is a lamp. That is a computer. That is pink that is blue. So the grosser delusions just cloud our minds so intensely that we believe there's a real thing existing called ugly Fred who causes me suffering. Buddha says that's not a conventional reality at all. Forget ultimate. So at least getting ourselves conventionally reasonable is a good start, I tell you. We start becoming a bit sane, you know. Then we've got to cut the root of the root delusion. That's why the first level of practice is at least control your crazy delusions. And then at least you're going to be more loving, more wise, more intelligent. That's conventional reality. At least you're on track conventionally, but they're still not finished yet. You've got an uproot even now, the root delusion. So it's a gradual process of working on your mind, you know. So here we're we're trying to look into the way that things exist ultimately. But the first step is to establish them conventionally. So when you study Buddhist philosophy, you first learn this kind of map of the universe, the worldview. And the first thing you learn is, well, almost the first, is that there are, there's various synonyms for that which exists. And why that's so crucial for the Buddha, because he's saying right now, like I just said, the delusions are causing us to live in la-la land about what, what exists. So we at least get clear conventionally. So there are several synonyms for that which exists. Phenomenon. Object of knowledge, object, existent, established base. There's like five. Maybe there's more. Excuse me. So whatever exists, this is a major point for the Buddha. Whatever exists, Buddha says, even conventionally, can is something that can be that can be um, the definition of the word existent is that which can be cognized by mind. I mean, this is profound. That which exists is is sealed at even conventional level by that which the mind can cognize. So it's axiomatic that that which the mind can cognize is that which exists. So mind is central to everything in the universe for the Buddha. It's very powerful. So... This is important because Buddha says we're living in la-la land right now, but believing in phenomena that don't exist. We believe in a cake that's divinely delicious. It'll make me happy when I eat it. He says, don't be ridiculous. No such thing exists. We're living in demented la-la land. And this is just the relative level. Forget the emptiness level. At least sort out our attachment and our aversion and get past those and see at least conventionally, yeah, there is a chocolate cake there, but it has no divine nature that attachment thinks it has. An ugly Fred who just cheated on me has no no intrinsic, has no ugly nature. This is conventions. Forget the ultimate. That's in high school. Get yourself a bit sane. Now we're ready to get to the root delusion, to uproot the root delusion. So... We're trying to establish what exists and how they exist. This is what we're trying to eventually, this is what wisdom means in Buddhism. That's why you're doing Mahamudra, to see how things exist finally. Why? Because that's what cuts the nonsense. That's what cuts the nonsense. So when in meditation, whether it's using the Mahamudra technique or the other technique or tantra or whatever, whatever method is you're using, there are many methods. Once you finally, on on the basis of karma-abiding meditation, As Lama Yeti says, you cannot get it without that because you've got to access the microscope of your mind. That's what come abiding allows you to do. Once you've got your first non-conceptual, direct, genuine insight into the truth that there never has been, isn't and never could be an intrinsic I, that's what we're going to go into, what it is, that's your first moment of a realization of emptiness. And that's the first second you cut. You cut the root of samsara. And after that first second of that realization, you cannot fall back. You're climbing out of your samsara into your nirvana. You can't fall back after that. You can only go forward. You still have plenty of work to do, but that's the that's the one we're aiming for. Your first moment of your direct, non-conceptual insight into the reality, the truth that there never has been, isn't, and never could be, that fantasy I. We have believed in four eons. So this approach we're taking here, which is the opposite to the Mahamudra approach, is using intellect. And it's, it's very tasty. So let's look at these two truths then as a method for helping us get the ultimate truth. Okay, so let's use the phenomenon called I. It's the one we're most attached to, the one we think about most, the one that's the centre of our universe is me, the object called me. So the words I, me, self are synonymous. So me, myself, I, our self are all synonymous they're all referring to this type of phenomenon, not a lamp, not a toilet, not a mug, not a computer, a, you know, we're referring to a person, but a person also in, you know, a person, hmm, there's slightly different words and a person, self, I, they're all synonymous. So we're one of those. Buddha's one of those. A hell being is one of those. An ant is one of those. We're that type of phenomenon. We're a person. Okay. So self or I, these are all synonymous. So, okay. So this Buddha presents different levels at which we grasp at a fantasy eye. The first one is we grasp, this is the grossest level. And it's not even really getting into selflessness yet. We believe that things are, there's a particular view that Buddha argues with that, that posits a, a definite, concrete, unified, permanent, unchanging self. That's a really gross mistake. Then another level, a slightly subtle level of mistake, not the subtlest yet. And let's look into this analysis, okay? And I'm kind of mixing, conflating these first two views, but that's okay. So this one you see, the first one, the things exist in dependence upon, upon causes. This more subtle level is that everything exists in dependence upon parts. So it sounds kind of boring. We know things have parts, but who cares, you know? It's got a major meaning here. Let's look into it. So I, the, the object called I, is made of many parts. So then how do we divide those parts? Well, let's keep it really simple. We can divide them into two. Let's keep it simple. We can divide it into the mind and the body. The mind and the body, they're the components of the person. You're made up of mind and you're made up of body. Now, obviously, we're talking the Buddha's view here, not the materialist view. We're talking the Buddha's view that posits we've got a consciousness, which is not physical, and this body is imbued with that consciousness. The difference between these four elements and the four elements of of this curtain behind me is that that's not imbued with the consciousness. The difference between the four elements of that flower and these four elements here is that this is imbued with the consciousness and they're not. This is all the four elements. It's the same as the flower, you know. So when there's a rotten carrot or there's a rotten rabbit's body with a mind that's gone, they're the same character. They're just rotten stuff. It's the four elements, you know. But when it's alive, the rabbit has a mind. It's a mind possessor. When this is alive, it's a mind possessor. That's the difference between the four elements there and the four elements here. Okay, this is Buddha's view. So we're made of the body and we're made of the mind. And then we know the perfectly well the mind has got lots of parts. So what's the parts of the mind? Is each thought, each moment, all the negative parts, all the positive parts, all the thousands of thoughts, the love, the kindness, the anger, the jealousy, uh, there's countless parts of our mind. Each of those are parts of our mind. And our body has got thousands of parts, haven't it? You know, it's thousands of parts. So this is, a, this is like an analogy I like to use. I don't know if we used it recently. No, maybe we didn't hear. But it's like Ikea. I think Ikea is a great example. You know, you, you buy, say so you go to buy a Rubina. You buy a me. You buy a Maria. You buy a Rod. You buy a Jean Marie. You're on the top line for me, you guys. Okay, I know where you are for you, but you're on the top line for me. So you go, you're going to go and buy a Maria at I- ikea could have a box of i want a maria so they ship the box to you and there's all the parts in there. So written this written as example there's all the bits and pieces of maria in there the nose and all the bits of the body and you've got to construct it it's quite difficult but there it is all the bits of the mind or all- maria's anger and her love and her kindness and her intelligence then there's all her body and her nose and her ligaments and her eyes and her ears many 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 bits and pieces all in this box right now this is already the first point one of the points The Ikea doesn't just chuck in 14 fingers randomly. There's exactly 10. There's exactly 10 toes. There's exactly the right number of ligaments, the right number of muscles, the right number of eyeballs, all the bits and pieces that make up Maria. So we're constructing gradually the Maria. Now, this is the point. We all believe that there's a part in there that we have to keep searching for that's called special mini me Maria, such that if you didn't put that little piece in at the end, there wouldn't be a Maria. It's Sort of like the motor that you've got to put in, but now it's Maria. And that special piece that we believe is there, that special part, as my friend Penday says, walking hand in hand with all the other parts, that's the intrinsic me. That's the special little Maria in there, the mini me called Maria. And we believe that that's the boss. There's an I in there, a self in there that's the boss, that without which there wouldn't be Maria. And Buddha says, "Don't be ridiculous. You don't need a piece like that. All the bits and pieces of Maria do fine without a boss called Maria." But we, and that's we impose this extra piece in there. And now look at our language. I, I have a hand. This is this is the analysis we have to do now. One of the many debates we need to do to use logic and analysis. The Buddha says, in this particular debate, says, if there's something that exists, if it exists, you have to point it out. So it has to be one thing. You have to point it out. So I will tell you some very simple statements. I've done this many times before. I will tell you, I have a lamp and a computer. So if that's a true statement, you have to count how many phenomena I stated. It's very clear. There are three. I is one phenomenon. Here it is there's another phenomenon called a computer and the third phenomenon is called a lamp so if that's a true statement even conventionally you have to say there are three separate separate phenomena and that's a simple if i say to you i have a lamp and a computer and you look over where i'm talking from if we're in the same room the first thing you'll do is you'll verify if i'm speaking the truth and if i say i have an elephant you'll you'll feel sorry for me because you won't see an elephant so you prove what i just said is true you will count three phenomena each of which is not the other so the, the rabina is not the lamp the lamp is not the computer the computer is not the rabina rabina is not the computer we can see this pretty quickly you're going to find three in this case a very simple example three separate distinct independent phenomena that's called logic it's called simple math now we get tricky. I will tell you that I have a nose and an ear. Now, without analysis, you will look over here and you will verify what I just said. This is Rabina. There's a nose and an ear. We won't analyze it, but Buddha says we have to analyze it because we're making a mistake without realizing it. no, okay. So first of all, first of all, how many phenomena did I mention? We know it was three. The same, I nose, ear. So if it's, if this is true conventionally, it needs to be the same as the previous example. We need to point out three separate phenomena, each of which is not the other. So the ear and the nose are easy. Here they are. Look, two separate things. So an ear, this is the point here, it functions and can exist without depending on a nose. The function of the ear, remember, is to hear things. The function of the nose is to breathe air. So the ear is not necessary for the nose to function, and the nose is not necessary for the ear to function, precisely. So that's easy. We can point out the two. Now we have to point out the third phenomenon called I that is not the nose, that is not the ear, that is not all the other thousands of parts in that box IKEA sent. And that's the piece we instinctively feel is there. Somehow an eye that's the motor that runs everything, that's the boss, like a like a puppeteer, or like a mini me, like the landlord, you know. We've got this deep, and we say that. We say it like that. You know, if Maria insults me, how she says, Oh, you have an ugly nose, Rabina. And I say, how dare you insult me, Maria? And she'll say, no, I didn't insult you, Rabina, I insulted your nose. We would laugh at that, but that's technically correct because we feel there is a part in here, we never analyze it, we never search for it, we just assume it's there, that's like this little mini me, the boss part. So you know, one of the type of analyses we can do, the meditation we can do, is literally doing this job of deconstructing, like in Ikea, you do a reverse deconstruct, like here's all the bits. So we're looking for the piece that's called I, and we'll be shocked to find there's no piece called I, but just the parts, how can there be an I? Because we assume there is a piece in there. There is a piece in here somewhere that's got, that bears the label I, this is the point now, that isn't the nose, and isn't the ear. And so one of the mistakes is, that it is the owner. We believe there's an owner in there. We say it. I have got so much anger. I have got so much beauty. I, you leave my nose alone, you know. We say it like that and we implicitly mean there's a little owner in there that is the object of that label. And Buddha says, you haven't got one like that. You don't even need one. The parts do fine working on their own. Now, this is not the final view yet, but it's already very tasty. And this is very shocking to us. Now, the point is this, at this simple level of trying to do the analysis, if, if, If there is a separate eye in there, this little eye that's the owner, if it's separate, which means you can point it out, which means it isn't the ear and isn't the nose. It's a separate piece. If there is a separate piece in just the same way that when I break the lamp, because it is independent and separate from the computer. My computer won't mind. My computer is working nicely. It can look away as the lamp falls over and feel sorry for the poor lamp, but the computer is untouched because they don't depend upon each other. Even my ear and my nose. If you cut my ear off, there won't be pain here. There'll be pain here, and my nose won't suddenly stop functioning because they're independent of each other in the simplest sense of their function. So, If there is a separate eye, a special little piece called eye that isn't the nose, that isn't the eye, that isn't the ear, that isn't the teeth, that isn't the love, that isn't the anger, that isn't the thousands of other parts, but is a distinct separate piece. If there is such a piece, then obviously when my ear hurts, my eye will be looking on feeling sorry for the ear it won't be affected now we know this is not true so this is where it gets more subtle more nuanced we know we say i am feeling pain and that's not wrong but it's a more subtle meaning we have to get used to because you can't pinpoint that i why because this is the subtlest one that i is the merely the name we label upon all the bits and pieces. Out of convenience, we say, I am suffering. But we're not, we're not meaning a special separate I. It's just merely labeled I. And this is the final conclusion we have to come to. So, of course, it's a fine point. It's a subtle point. It's highly nuanced. But this is what we have to get to. So the two truths. Right now, we have extreme views. So whenever we hear the words... I, the, there is not a single atom of anything here that is the I. The I is completely empty of existing independently. That's the real word that all inherent, self-existent, from its own side, in and of itself, existing naturally. There are many synonyms. And they all are synonyms for there's no independent I. There's no I in here that's independent of the parts. And finally, there is no I in here that's independent of the mind that calls it I. So when we hear that, when we hear the I is empty, that's the truth, the ultimate truth. But because we have this misconception, we hear it as, oh dear, there's no eye, and we throw the baby out with the bathwater. I might as well kill myself, there's no eye. I've looked and I can't find an eye. So as holiness says, the eye is not empty because you can't find it, and you can't find it. That's not the real premise. The I is empty of existing independently because it is a dependent arising. So this is the two truths together. But right now, when we hear emptiness, we hear nothingness. We throw the baby out with the bathwater. We fall into the abyss of the great mistake, as Tsongkhapa says. That's where we run. And we can't, And that's the deepest, worst, most outrageous mistake that we make in the world and in the literature and people's misunderstanding of emptiness. Therefore, there is no I. And you're right. You won't find one. But that's not the real premise. And you've got to go further. That's nihilism. Oh, well, there's no I, might as well die. Oh, there's no cause and effect. There's no this, there's no that, might as well kill myself. That's nihilism, and it is not the meaning of emptiness. But that's the wrong view we go flying off to, flying off the handle. We chuck the baby out of the bathwater. It's a great mistake. Now, as soon as we hear dependent arising, as Lama Zopa says, there is an I that does exist, but exists in dependence upon the mind calling it, that as soon as we hear that there is an eye that does exist interdependently we, we we go to the other extreme and we grasp go, oh thank god there is an eye after all so that we overestimate the eye and here we underestimate and we go between like drunken sailors between these two extremes not you know it, eternalism, there is a thing from its own side, or there's nothing. And we can't hear the reality of the two truths. So when we're on the right track, whenever we feel, when we get a sense that something is empty, as Rinpoche says, he says, when you realize the emptiness of the I, or whatever else it is, he says, it's as if there's no I, but there is, dependent on arising, but what does exist is so subtle, it's as if it doesn't exist. So it's something is empty, it's as if there's no I there, but there is, but what does exist is so subtle, it's as if it doesn't exist. So this is like a tricky way the yogis have, it sounds just like being tricky, but that's the yogi's experience. So the two truths go together, they don't contradict. And when we start to be on track there, as Nagarjuna says, or Chandra Kirti says, or whoever, now we're on track with understanding Buddhist teachings. Two truths are the flip side of the same coin, you know, dependent arising and emptiness. These are the words, few words. So as Lama I mean, yes, says, in this approach, we have to squeeze our brains, you know. I like that. Nothing wrong with squeezing our brains. We've got very good brains. We squeeze our, we squeeze our brains all day with our stupid rubbish. Why not squeeze our brains with good stuff, you know, we squeeze our brains all day about how mean that person was, analyzing it in great depth for five hours. We'll do the same with this one. Use your brains for the good stuff. So now, full stop, turn the page, new chapter. Let's look at the word emptiness, because that throws us completely, you know. Okay, let's get yes, let's look at this. Do you want a five-minute break? I have a five-minute break you chapter turn the page 5 minute break okay